So it was the time of year when you have Christmas plays, and one kid in the bunch was especially excited. I don't know if you guys have seen, there's a clip rolling around the internet right now of this kid named Milo, he's British, and he's telling his mom, he says, I got a part in the Christmas play, and he's like, it's one of the classic ones, and she goes, what, what, what was it? She's like, guess, is it Joseph, no, is it, is it a Magi? No. She's like, okay, well, you tell me. It's, sure, it's one of the classic ones. He goes, it's door holder number three. I'm going to be holding doors. And he's so excited. She's like, you are? She, he goes, yeah, I'm going to need to wear brown. <laughs> this, this kid, though, was just as excited, and he was assigned on the day of the tryouts. He was assigned the part of the innkeeper in the nativity story. And so he came home, told his parents, and he's like, I only have one line in the play, no room. His parents are like, all right, there's a lot to work with there, a lot of different intonation you can bring to that. So they're practicing all, all week before the performance, they're practicing no room, no room, no room. And it gets to be time for the performance, and Mary and Joseph are coming up to the inn, out comes the innkeeper, and they say, my wife is pregnant, I need place to stay tonight. And he says, no room. And they turn around, sadly, and they start to walk away from the inn. And you can just see it in the kid's face. He just can't stomach this. And he goes, wait! <laughs> and Mary and Joseph kind of turn around and he says, you can have my room. And everybody applauds and it was like, Wow, they go back in, kind of a change of plans. The play ends there. It was this wonderful <laughs> reconciliation story. You know, the funny thing about this story, though, is not just that that's not how the story goes. It's also funny that that story is so historically anachronistic. And here's why. Nobody would have considered that at the time to be the right thing to do. Now we look at that and it's, it's as plain as day that what somebody should have done is give up what was theirs to give to somebody else. But you know what? In this time in history, there was no virtue of humility. Self-sacrifice, actually, just a few hundred years before the time of Jesus, the great Greek philosophers were writing about what we would call humility as smallness of soul. See, great people are great, and they, they should expect other people to treat them like they're great. And servants should expect to be treated like servants. But you should never consider yourself in the other category. See, what's so fascinating about that story is that it is so Christian before Christ. It's the same kind of anachronistic as if you were to say the play, the, the, the town of Bethlehem was so busy because they were celebrating Christmas. Christmas hadn't even happened yet. The same is true with humility. The great leader of the universe, the great king of everything, had not yet laid down his life for the servants. The virtue of humility, selflessness, self-sacrifice, was not in the popular consciousness until Jesus Christ came and made himself low for people who didn't deserve it. 
See, in, in our Advent series this year, we're talking about the qualities of Jesus as a king. And some of these qualities are very apparent in earthly kings. We talked last week about the glorious king, Jesus. That, that would have really landed on first century ears. We're going to talk about the peacemaking king, the eternal and everlasting king. But this week is a quality that no king up until Jesus had ever thought was worth their while. The humble king. The humble king. In the time of Zechariah, the second, uh, second to last book in our Old Testament, it was a low point for Israel. This was a time after the exile. They had been conquered. They had been kicked out of the land. The kingdom of David and Solomon had gone away. They had been removed by Babylon and shipped out all over the world. And after Babylon is conquered, Cyrus the Great issues an edict that the Jews can go back to their land. But the problem is, so many of them had settled in other places that very few of them wanted to go back. And so a little band of Israelites come back with Zerubbabel, and they rebuild the temple, and a group of people who had seen the old temple before it was destroyed come to see Zerubbabel's temple. And in the book of Haggai, they say it was the most disappointing thing they had ever seen. It was nothing compared to their previous temple. In fact, they say things like, could the glory of God ever inhabit such a shabby building? Could the great God of the universe condescend to this temple? And God raised up these prophets who spoke to the people of Israel and they said, oh, the glory that comes into this temple, this little wooden temple, this temple that kind of looks like it's in shambles compared to the other one, this temple, the glory there will exceed anything that's come before. In this time period, Zechariah, in chapter 9, uses a new word for the Messiah. See, up until now, you've had prophecies about the Messiah for thousands of years, but nobody had ever described the Messiah this way. It says in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming, righteous and bringing salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Nowhere else in the Old Testament is this word humble used of the Messiah. This is the first time, and and it's in the humblest of circumstances that they realize it's not just going to take a powerful king, it's not just going to take a glorious king, it's going to take a humble king to come to his people. In a second scene, you know, the story of Mary and Joseph is very familiar to us, that they go and the innkeeper, instead of offering them their room, kicks them out. They go into what is most likely a cave where animals stay. It's dirty, it's smelly, it's unsanitary. It's the last place you'd ever want to have a baby. And Mary and Joseph bed down for the night in a place that was a far away spot from any city. In fact, Bethlehem is talked about in the prophets of being too insignificant even to number with the cities in Judea. They're literally cast out in every way. They have this baby, and they have nothing to put him in except a manger. As we just sang a few minutes ago, the baby in the hay. You you had to have wondered that night, if you were sitting there, what kind of king 
would be born in a manger? What, what kind of God would send His Son to be lain where animals eat? What, what kind of king could possibly come from that and amount to anything? See, Paul puts it this way in the book of Philippians, that one of the characteristics of Jesus that we should model our lives after, in Philippians chapter 2, he says this, Jesus, though He was in the form of God, He made Himself nothing. He did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the ultimate symbol of humiliation and shame. One of the great church histories that's been written in the last hundred years by Bruce Shelley is called Church History in Plain Language. And the opening line of this book is, Christianity is unique in this sense. It is the only world religion to feature at its center the humiliation of its God. Jesus considered himself nothing, took on the form of a servant, humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Could the king of heaven come to this dark and dirty cave? Could the one who sits on heaven's throne be laid in a manger? See, C.S. Lewis says that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. See, Jesus actually marks a turning point in all of human history because he doesn't diminish in any sense who he is. But he makes his entire mission outside of himself, that he would, think le- he would not think less of himself, but he would think of himself less because he was thinking about you. A king thinking about you and about me. Here's the third scene. Back in our book of Zechariah, there's another vision. In chapter 3, Zechariah has this haunting vision of the high priest of Israel. And as you know, the high priest, one day a year, would put on the full priestly garb. He would go into the Holy of Holies and stand before God on behalf of the people. And Zechariah sees a vision of this high priest who has gone into the holy place, and he's not alone. Satan, the accuser, is standing by him. And as they go before God, the accuser, Satan, says to the Lord, look at this unworthy, sinful human. See, what happens is when they go in, it says, now Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord, and he was clothed in filthy garments, soiled, filthy garments, only worthy to be expelled from the presence of the Lord. And Satan, as you know, the name Satan is really not a name, it's a title. It means the accuser. And in this case, the accuser is exactly right. He has no business standing here before you. These people, they rebelled against you. They've sinned against you. They haven't kept your commandments. You said if you do well, you'll have life. If you sin, you'll have death. The punishment for them is death. And in fact, all of us would have to say in this moment that he was exactly right. So God 
rebukes Satan. And it says, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. This is one of the most profound prophecies about what Jesus would come and do. See, sin requires that a price be paid. The, the point of Jesus coming was not like one of those moments where you get in trouble and they say, you know what, this time I'm not going to do anything about it. You're off scot-free. That's, that's actually not the gospel. The gospel says that we didn't get off scot-free, punishment had to be made, but Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life and he took our soiled garments on himself and we took his high priestly pure white robes and put them on ourselves. The substitution of Jesus is a master for a servant, a holy, pure, wonderful king for a rebellious serf. Could the holy, perfect, spotless Son of God take on our dirty clothes? Only a humble king could do that. Only a humble king would come to his people, die for them, lift them up, clothe them, and bring them to be with him forever. It takes a humble king to do this for his people, but it also takes a humble king to create humble people. See, the reason that you and I are humble is not because it's in our best interest, it's because that's what our Savior did for us. He gave up his life for us so we can give up our lives for others. I'll conclude with this. The personal part of this story is you're the high priest. I'm the high priest. You're the person who's standing before God who knows you have no business being there. And unless somebody would come and pay the penalty for you, you deserve to be away from God forever. But the message of Christmas is that in the spiritual sense, in the physical sense, in the emotional sense, in the historical sense, Jesus humbled himself to come and put himself in our place so that we could be reunited with God forever. So this morning, we're going to celebrate communion together. And the way we do communion here is you'll come up to the front all together. There's going to be a lot of us this morning. You'll come up to the front, tear off a piece of the bread, and dip it in the cup. And this is what Jesus commanded us to do when he was at the Last Supper, is to take this meal in remembrance of him, to proclaim his death until he comes again, to proclaim that we actually couldn't do this on our own, but our humble king came and died for us. And as you come this morning, Jamie's going to lead us in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And I want to leave this ringing in your ears about the humble king that we serve. Ray Orland, who's a well-known pastor in Nashville, opened their service with this call to worship the humble king. And my invitation to you this morning is to hear this invitation to the table of Jesus as you come and share the body and the blood of Christ. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, the friend of sinners. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we come to you humbly because you came to us humbly. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Your Son, Jesus Christ, is the Almighty King of heaven who was slain for sinners. Father, as we come to your table now and we just reflect on that greeting, 
we thank you for your welcome. Lord, for your hospitality towards us, that your son is preparing a place for us to be with you forever. Father, especially this week, we thank you that on a cold night, in the middle of nowhere, you sent your son to be born in a lowly and humble circumstance to die on a cross so that we could be with you forever. So, Father, we respond to you with our lives, with our whole hearts, with everything we have. We say thank you. We love you. We follow you. We obey you. We trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and come to the table of Jesus Christ.